welcome to Tarvon Talks. My name is Dahl, and today I'll be joined by Thad and Diana as we discuss the first season of Amazon's Wheel of Time. We will do our best to keep spoilers to a minimum. However, any spoilers will be noted in the show notes. What do we think of the first season? Upon the first watch, I think I was... Um things didn't happen that I was expecting to happen because a lot of stuff got very condensed considering they had only a certain amount of episodes to work with. So, you know, little things get changed for adaptation. I'm totally fine by that. I was looking for specific scenes because, you know, I, I knew the path they were taking. So I enjoyed it for, uh, for it being, you know, an adaptation of a very, very long and complicated book series. Yeah. I really loved it. Um, I look at it as another turning of the wheel. I think there are certain parts of it that are stronger um, and certain parts of it that that are not as strong, um, especially the last episode, which really suffered from COVID precautions, unfortunately. Um, but overall, I absolutely loved it, followed as much of the development of the show as I could um, as just a fan. Um, and so wasn't really shocked by anything that did or did not make it into the show. Yeah, I I made a point of not rereading the books right before. Like, it's been a few years now, so that everything wasn't so fresh in my mind. Because I wanted to enjoy the show as something completely different. And I think it helped that it wasn't fresh, but obviously there were things that stood out that were different. And, you know, I kind of liked it, because it's, it's nice not having all of the information ahead of times. So there's definitely changes that I'm not sure about yet. I kind of want to see where they're going, especially with aging the kids up. Like, I understand why they did it. You know, nobody wants to watch 16-year-olds killing each other, unless it's Hunger Games, I guess. But Well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that particularly bothered me. Uh, I think the biggest issues, I guess I could say, is the pacing was kind of like a yo-yo in some episodes to where there'd be, you know great pacing along the episode and then it would stall and then all of a sudden you know a ton of stuff happened in an even shorter amount of time and you're just kind of like wait a second i need to i need a moment to think about this to really process what happened but uh were there any episodes that kind of stood out for from the first season for you compared to you know others that were just kind of bottom of the barrel because you know you have to have a favorite and you have to have a least favorite um i i find it very hard to pick one favorite um, I have to pick two. I absolutely love episode six, um, Swarin Forever. It's one <laughs> of the best pairings. And I, I genuinely did not think we were going to get that in the show. Um, and when they had been hinting at it in episode, I think it was episode four, um, and they had like been kind of hinting at it and kind of hinting at it, I truly didn't believe it until they kissed in episode six, until I saw it with my own eyes. And then I started crying. Um, I myself am queer. And so to see two um, women who love each other in this thing that I love so much was just like over the moon. Um, I also love episode five. I know it's completely off book, but it does a lot of foreshadowing work, especially for the end of the season um, and also for stuff going forward that we won't get into because there are spoilers. So if you want to know what I'm talking about, read and find out. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I enjoy about episode five, even though, as you said, it's off book, is that 
we get to explore the world a little bit more for things that we didn't get in the book, which, you know, take that as you might, you know, people who prefer the books over the TV show may not really care or like anything about that, but I'm all game for new content for the world of the wheel. We got to see what a little bit more into the warders and how, you know, they act and stuff like that. So it was definitely a plus. I think it was a really beautiful way to show the relationship between a, an Aes Sedai and her warders, which is a lot of told in the books um, through emotions. And you can't really like do that in a show. So, but what about you doll? Yeah. Um, I have a hard time picking a favorite too. Like I, I could find something I loved about just about every episode. So it is really hard to pick out just one. Episode five was great. Like the, the whole funeral scene and everything was, is really moving. And it was just interesting, to, especially to see Lan break down that way. Lan is so stoic, but he's got to be holding on to those emotions. And you know, he feels everything Maureen feels. And she's a passionate lady. You know, just to see him break down, even if it's a moment of absolute grief like that. And of course, them actually bringing the subcontext from the books out into the open with Swin and Maureen was just beautiful. And I loved everything about it. And Neil, <laughs> like, I was just like, yes. <laughs> it was just, it's really beautiful to see that, like, be on the TV with these characters. I'll fully admit, I totally forgot that they were, they were uh, pillow friends when they were um, uh, just novices that are accepted or whatever. So when that happened, I was just like, oh, that's right. That was a thing. Yeah, you have to go back and reread uh, New Spring. But yeah, and I also really love getting to see Loyal. And Oh, absolutely. I also love that Loyal is uh, basically practical effects and no CG. Really adds to it. Most of the show is practical effects. Like, there's very little CG done, and most of it was to enhance what they did with the practicals, at least until episode eight. And then, oof. But unfortunately, that, that was obviously because of COVID. Yeah, that's that's why I'm hoping, you know, once season two starts, um, it'll be better than the end of uh, season one. Because, you know, it, the, the, the way season one ended with the... Um, with the inclusion of showing the Sean Chan coming, uh, there's only one way to go, and that's up. Wow, I'd forgotten about the Sean Chan. How amazing was that scene at the very end with the, the boat coming in? The giant wave was a little ridiculous, but touch. it was also like really cool. It was just like, <laughs> that poor little girl. They were setting the tone. They were setting, yeah, the, setting tone. the tone. That poor girl. <laughs> I know. Like, where are her parents, first of all? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that Sean Chan scene is incredible. Um, And I agree that the only way to go is up. The Sean Chan, I I know a lot of my friends who are not familiar with The Wheel of Time. When they watch the show, because I made all of them watch the show, (laughs) um, were saying, oh, this is just Lord of the Rings 2.0. Oh, this is just Lord of the Rings. And honestly... The or um the eye of the world is very much Lord of the Rings. I can't fault them for that. Books one through three is a, a Lord of the Rings quest before it hits Shadow Rising, and that's where the story gets g- good. Right. Jordan was pretty open about that. The first three chapters of the Eye of the World are basically just a retelling of Gandalf coming into the Shire and taking the Hobbits. Except Gandalf was Moraine, and the Hobbits were Matt, Rand, Perrin, and Egwene. Except for the Sean Chan. 
they felt like a departure from from Lord of the Rings. They feel like their own Wheel of Time entity. And I'm very excited to have that big divergence be in season two. I think it wasn't supposed to be a straight retelling of the Lord of the Rings. It was supposed to be like, this is the fantasy that you're familiar with. And then twist, you know, the women are in charge and and you have this world that was broken and all of these myths and legends from all over the world, not just Tolkien's England. I mean, the amount of modern day references in the Wheel of Time should kind of send that home, which you, you probably won't pick up the first time you read it. Even in the very first chapter or one of the very first chapters, like when Tom is telling his stories to the kids, he's talking about stuff that happened in our time because it was Glenn the Eagle and his daughter, Sally. It says John Glenn and Sally Ride and mm-hmm. Mosk and Merck and they're yeah. playing with lightning in the sky. That's, that's America and Moscow and their nuclear weapons. I didn't pick that up until somebody pointed it out to me because it was just a throwaway line in the first chapter. Their legends are our world. Like, that was when I went, this series is more complicated than I ever thought. For, for me, one, one of the first ones was at the first Jordan Con when uh, I think it was um, it was either Alan or Maria was in one of the panels. And they were just like, oh, yeah, when, when Jordan was talking about this thing in Tanchico or was it Tanchico? It was like, oh, it's, it's the hood ornament of a Mercedes car. And you're just like, oh, wow, I had no idea. So it was Tanchico. There's a museum. All of the stuff in that museum was stuff from our world, like that hood ornament and uh, the giraffe skeleton. The giraffe skeleton, and even like the, I did not realize this. Like when they, the kids see the ruined tower, in the distance, I didn't realize that they were antennas um, until somebody pointed it out to me. They were steel spires rising into the sky, and they were you know like ruin in ruins. They were radio antennas. Huh. Well, I, I don't think I missed that. I think I missed that. See, learning something new. Still, 20 years later. And they included them in the show, like, or something similar. They did, like, in the episode where they did the flashback to the Age of Legends. Mm-hmm. And you see the buildings. And then later in that episode, and there, you see the buildings in ruins. They, sh- they showed in the opening shot of the first episode as well. Oh, yeah, they do. The end of the cold open in episode one and the end yeah. of the cold open in episode eight are the same scene. But in episode one, it's them ruined. And then in episode eight, it's them in all of their glory. And mm. I didn't realize that until I saw a gift set side by side. Um, but all of my, again, I've, I apologize to be referencing my non-Wheel of Time friends a lot, but they are how I gauged the show. Um, all of them picked up on that the first time we watched it. Oh, that's cool. And I was like, this show has done its job. Yeah. It fans who do not know what to expect are understanding it. The show has done its job. I watched this episodes every week um of a friend who actually met through Tarvalon but actually lives here in my hometown. Um and we had a whole group of people that watch it and most of us have read the books but there's one or two people who have it we were always watching them through key scenes to be like <laughs> what are you going to pick up on and then one of them was like I think Rand's the dragon and I'm like do you do you really hmm that's interesting 
the, the only people I could get to watch it were my parents. And uh, my, my mom was thinking it was going to be Matt the whole time. He's too shifty. <laughs> I kept a running tally from all of my friends of who's the dragon this episode? Who do you think is the dragon this episode? Um, and for a long time, they actually had the split soul theory. They thought all of the kids were the dragon. And I was like, that's ridiculous. And then when they referenced that in the show, I was like, okay. Yeah, I feel like that was their way of trying to extend the whole mystery of who the dragon is. It's more heavily hinted what's going on with Rand very early on in the books. But the scene with Pam and the the Trolloc on Winter's Night, they sort of left that out until much later. Yeah, that was one of those scenes that I was like, they didn't show it. They didn't show it. And then once they did the reveal, they, they, they showed it. And I was just like, okay, there we go. Now I feel better. I am probably a rare Wheel of Time fan where I was very happy that they included a very short version of that scene because other than when I first read the books, every time I pick up the books again, if I am going to put down the eye of the world, it is in that chapter. I I think I have started the eye of the world at least five times and dropped it in the chapter where Rand is trying to drag Tam to Emmonsfield. That chapter really could have been five pages. It didn't have to be a whole chapter. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's tough. So when they revealed it at the end in episode, I believe that was episode seven, I was like, this was a great way for me, for me personally, I under, I definitely wanted it in the show, but I was like, this was a great way as far as I'm concerned to handle this. I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. It, it, it didn't need to be 20, the 20 pages that, you know, every chapter in the early books was. No, it was definitely a good thing that they, they did not make that an entire episode. So I know that people are probably going to, you know, ask the question, but how did you feel about the exclusion of Narg in terms of talking, at least? R.I.P. Narg. <laughs> R.I.P. Narg, for sure. Um, I recently re-listened to the beginning of Eye of the World because I wanted to listen to the Rosamund Pike version. And I got it about as far as that chapter. And Narg is not the first Trolloc that comes through the door. There's like a whole other group. Um, And so when I re-listened to that and remembered that, I was a little bit more okay with it. I certainly miss Narg and having at least a talking Trolloc because it is such a cool part of the Trolloc lore that there is at least one who can speak human speech. Um, I'm hoping we get that next season or at some point. As much as I miss the, the narc jokes, I, I don't, he just makes no sense in the, the narrative. He's the only Trolloc we got to see that talked. We don't really get much backstory in the books on the Trollocs and what they are, what their culture is. I mean, I know we learn it in the some of the subsequent materials, like the Big White Book or the Companion, but that it just doesn't make sense to have a talking Trolloc. Definitely would have raised more questions than answered any. Yeah. So, R.I.P. Narc, but you're not that smart. <laughs> and I, I could see us getting some if we are going to get more villain backstory. I could see us going into like a Trolloc town at some point or like I could see the show kind of expanding on the villains that way. I'm not saying we will, obviously, but I could see it happening. Um, 
I do have a lot of faith in the showrunner, maybe more faith than some other people in the fandom do. Um, well, we won't talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have valid opinions. I don't want to discount them. I just some, have a lot of. Yeah. Some of them are just downright mean. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but um, I, I know that people have a lot of valid concerns for the show, and but I'm just unfor- I'm sorry, guys, but I'm not one of them. Yeah. <laughs> For for me, the most concern is how are they going to handle, you know, this situation? How is this going to come across? What are they going to do about this character since, you know, plot lines leading up to a thing they do happened in the first season, but didn't happen the same way, so on and so forth. You know, for example, like with the whole thing of them not going to Camelin. So we didn't get our introduction of... um, Gawain or uh, Galad, Morghese, or yeah, Galad, um, and um, Elaine, and all that. Yeah, I have a feeling that they just put them out of order and we went straight to Faldara instead of going through Camelin. And I think they'll probably come back through it in season two. Yeah, and and that's that's I'm totally fine with that. Um, there's a I, I think. It's been quoted that there's over 200 individual point of views throughout all 15 books. So they're not going to all make the cut. No, but they can't cut Galad out entirely, I don't think. Definitely not. I have a controversial fan theory that Morghese is not going to be in the show. Um, That if they're going to cut one character from Camelin, it's going to be Morghese. And... We're just, which would be fine because some of her plot lines in the book, I think, are not super essential. Um, also, I there's some of the plot lines I actually don't want the show to go into. Um, I think there are ways that you can handle what happens with her in a way where she is t- discussed but never brought on screen. Um, but I, I do. I'm quite confident we're going to see Galad and Gawain next season. I just want to see Matt beat the snot out of him. <laughs> I think we... That's what That's what I want to see. Did we see the staff scene in the, like, behind-the-scenes footage? There was something similar, but it was not Matt. There was a, it was the origins and it was about the warders training. And there was one that they showed a staff, like one of the best warders getting beat by a staff. I don't think it was specifically Matt. Yeah, because that was the story that, um, what was his name? Haman, I believe the, uh, the one that teaches the warders. He was the one that told that story after, uh, Matt beat Galab and Gawain. Right. That was because he, he, you know, because they underestimated him, yeah. and they said the greatest swordsman ever could beat a hundred men, a hundred armed men, but he was taken down by one farmer with the staff, right? Because they underestimated. That's him. correct. I've forgotten about that. So that's what that scene was. Mm-hmm. There's there is something in the behind the scenes footage of season two that we saw. That is a couple of characters training with a staff. And one of those characters is my first personal theory for who they have cast as Gawain. I have seen other people thinking that they've cast him as Galad. Um, but that is 
Jay Duffy. Um, and he is definitely in that scene training with a staff. So I'm wondering if that is because he and Gawain get this not beaten out of them by Matt. And so he's like, okay, let me train with a staff in a rare moment of Galad or Gawain hum- humility. So the question is, does he have a lot of starry-eyed women in the backdrop of the picture <laughs> looking at him? Then we would know that it's Galad. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's an interesting question, especially since Matt is now going back to Taiwan. Like, he's not going back to the tower. Uh, there's no way he's going back to the tower unless he's going back to retrieve the knife. Well, remember it. At the end of the first season, they kind of showed him. I assume that was back in Tarvalon because I think they used because the set for Tarvalon was also for uh, Aaron Hall. Uh, actually, what's Shadar Logoth? That's that's its name now. Because uh, they used the same set for both of those locations, and they showed him in that location. So I'm not sure if he went to Shadar Logoth or if he's gone back to the tower to retrieve the knife because that's where it's at. Or that's where he thinks it's at. Because as, as we know, at the end of the season, uh, Fane has it. It was really awkwardly done, but, and I understand why they had to do it without having Barney to, to film a final scene. They they just made do with the shots they already had. But I have to assume it's part one. I don't see how he would have made it all the way back to Shadow of Goth. Yeah, I'm, that's that's a fair shake on it. I agree that it's Tarvalon. Also, don't forget that Moiraine asked a, asked somebody to contact the Red Sisters about Matt. So it's possible that if he's in the city, they picked him up and brought him to the tower against his will. It'd be interesting to see what they do with that, since it had to deviate so far from the events in the book. Between that and the COVID restrictions, the episode just became a complete mess. Yeah, that's why, that's why I don't hold too much distaste for Episode 8, just because they did the best with what they had with, you know, a global pandemic going on. So There, there are a couple of non-COVID choices that are made in 8 that I find strange. Um, like, they have this armor that is impenetrable and have, has been worn in many battles, and for some reason, the guy is like, I'm going to go fight Trollocs, I'm not wearing that armor. And I was like, why (laughs) why was that your choice like sorry i guess you're doomed but okay um that that choice in particular i always find incredibly strange when i watch the episode that's probably my biggest nitpick with with the script that's not covid related what was his name it's agomar and oh i can never remember his sister's name it's amalicia amalisa yes I'm Elisa, and her strange circle that could. Oh, yeah, that was a very interesting choice on how to do all that. Yeah, I, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, I get that they wanted to have some kind of visual representation, but they made it look like Nynaeve died, and then Egwene the brought her back. And I don't think that was their intention, but it certainly looked that way. I think it was supposed to be she was like on the brink of yeah. death, but uh, she was healed back in time. I wish they had switched that. I wish they had switched that to Egwene dying, given or almost dying. Given what happens with Nynaeve later, it would make thematically so much more sense. Um, There's also another moment in that episode where Nynaeve is talking about how she can't hear the wind anymore 
but Egwene still can. And I wish that they had reversed that dialogue as well. There were a lot of dialogue and choices made with Nynaeve and Egwene in particular, where I'm like, this scene has not changed, but thematically things are so much more true to characters if you just reverse this dialogue. Is this how they're going to explain her block? And that's why she can't hear the wind? Because that's what I thought was. First, I thought she would burn herself out, but but I really do think that maybe she's developed her block now and she'll be too scared to channel again until she lets go of it. That could be. I think they made it too easy for her to channel in some of those scenes, but she did do it with that big emotion. And I think maybe she's completely blocked herself now. That way they can explain it better while still being able to let her do some more extraordinary things earlier in the series. That would make sense, I think. That could be. I like that explanation. Otherwise, why can't she hear the wind? The hearing the wind is the metaphor that the wisdoms have always used in the two rivers for being able to channel without admitting that that's what they were doing. So if she can no longer hear the wind, does that mean she's no longer able to access the one power? It'll be interesting to see how they handle that. Yeah. So where do you guys think we're going with season two other than the Shan Chan? I have a big theory on what what they could potentially do. As we saw at the end of the first season, um, Moraine gets, uh, I think, a lot of people think she's stilled because she can't feel it anymore and i'm like no it's a it's a shield she was shielded but since she was shielded by the male half she can't feel it can't do anything about it in the second book you know moraine and lan have one chapter in the entire book and that's all we get of them so you know you gotta have rosamund pike and um daniel Haney all season long and instead of you know at two ancient brown sisters trying to find information on the prophecies so now that we've got this situation of uh oh i can't access the power anymore what are we going to do about it i think this is where a good point for um varin to come in is because she's you know she's the most prominent brown in the series she's gonna go or moraine's gonna go to varin they're gonna try to figure this out you know by looking you know basically doing a scavenger hunt of old records maybe to find a way to potentially free themselves free herself from from being uh, shielded because you know as we see in later books if you know where a weave is even if you can't see it and you know what it is you can undo it because uh Lanfear does that to rand she's just like you know she gets held up by air and she just picks it apart not even seeing it she's like yep this is possible so i think we're gonna get varin in season two here and uh, that's going to be her little journey of figuring out how to undo what was done to her at the end of season one. And for the rest of the kids, I haven't thought that far ahead. I like that. I really do. Not because Varen's my favorite or anything, but... <laughs> 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 so it, instead of bringing in two characters we never see again, we bring in Varen. Because Varen is very important. And not just because she's my favorite person and she's a brown but for other, but because her story, her story is very important. Other very important reasons. Very, very important reasons <laughs> that I won't get into because they're spoilery, or at least not at this point in time. So read and find yeah. out. I think I think Rand's headed to the waste, and I think we're going to meet more Aiel. I think he's looking for some answers because we already know we're, we're getting Avienda this season because mm-hmm. they announced her um, actress at. Jordan Khan. Yeah. 
I, so I think for Perrin in particular, they've announced that they're going to cast Elias. And I can't remember if we know who is cast as Elias, but we know he's going to be in season two. Um, and I think that they are going to replace the sniffer from Faldara, whose name is escaping me. Huron. I love Huron. He's the best. I love him. He is a delight. I unfortunately don't think he's going to be in season two. I think they're going to replace... Probably not. Yeah. I think they're going to replace him with Elias. Yeah, because you've got, you know, a wolf brother who can already do what Huron can. And, you know, there was that whole back and forth in, you know, book two with, oh, is Perrin going to be a a sniffer too? Since he can, you know, uh, suss out whatever Huron was uh, smelling. Yeah, exactly. So I think that that's going to be what they, how they handle Perrin. I, I agree. I agree with you totally. Yeah. And they're going to, they're going to chase the dra- the dagger and Pat and Fane, um, which makes sense since they had a lot of Pat and Fane and her er, and Perrin stuff at the end of episode eight. Yeah. When, I feel like that should have been Matt's scene. Like most of that stuff happened with Matt in the book. But putting Perrin in the place would make sense if they bring in Elias as the sniffer, and that that would make a more smoother transition for that particular story. Yeah. Um, what do you guys think about the theory? Not my theory, but I like it. The theory that we are skipping tier this season and going straight to the waste. I think that's a very good possibility, considering that what we've seen from the, the behind the scenes so far. I. Yeah, I could I could definitely see that happening, especially if Rand is already heading towards the waste. You know, if that has yeah. been confirmed, because you know, we just know that he's off on his own now. And I think in the few shots that I've seen at least, uh they don't show him in any kind of desert. He just uh has a what, a shaved head now and yeah. he's by himself. He has a shaved head, but we also see IU and it makes me think that he's made it to the waste we might still end up at here because Rafe did say they were going to form he said form but i thought it was fall may i could be wrong i've heard both in the I official audio description because like michael kramer will say fall may and then uh k reading will say form or something like yeah. that and it's like all right okay which one is it i mean if they're gonna leave the waste unless they use a portal stone um and I mean, you know, spoilers, they, they do do that to get to Falm in the first place, but then they also do that to get into the waste. Yeah. So. And the portal stones are in the show, which I was shocked by. Did they show them off in season one or were they in like fo- bad behind the scenes photographs? They're in season one. If you look for them, especially in the episode where they're all going to Tarvalon, every single person passes a portal stone at one point going into Tarvalon. Okay. And so there's the nice setup. Right? Yeah. I thought the portal stones were going to be cut completely because they become basically irrelevant at a certain point in the series. They have the potential to be so overpowered. Truly. I, if they do away with the portal stones and they might be doing away with other plot lines, I think would be interesting to see, but might be a little superfluous with the Elfin and the Elfin. I don't think they will do away with them. They are so essential to Matt's plotline in particular. I don't think they'll yeah. be with them. That's true. It depends on how they handle Matt exactly. Like, yeah, I could see them coming up with another way to explain without having to go through all of that with 
the Tower of Genji. And I'd love to see that, but I don't I don't know how they're going to do it and fit it all yeah, in. I wish they I I seriously hope we get to see inside the elephant or elephant dimension at least once. It has such iconic scenery that no matter how many times I read it, I that's the one thing I always remember. That would be really cool. Yeah. So do we have anything else we're looking forward to in season two? I am excited to see Elida. I hate Elida. You love to hate Elida. <laughs> I truly do. She is my number one least favorite character in the series, which I don't think is a hot take. And I am thrilled to see her. Do we think that we will, or are they going to roll her in with the Leandrin? I don't think they're going to. I think we're going to see Elida. It just felt like they were setting her up to take on Swan. I would hate to see that because I feel like they've served two different purposes. Well, I feel like her storyline specific, well, I guess it could be done by a different character, but her storyline specifically with a, another character who I will not name, you should read the books, mm-hmm. uh, is very important in the later books for the development of said character, if you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. I think because Leandrin is Black Aja and Elida is not, that is why I really don't want them to combine those characters. I just I think it's so crucial to Elida's plotline that she is not Black Aja. They were coming at it with the same outcomes, but very different points of view. You have somebody who truly thinks they're doing the right thing, but ends up doing something really evil. Yeah. Whereas you have some another person who's just evil. And I'm just afraid that they're going to roll those characters into one person. I have faith that they won't. I agree with you that they were definitely setting up Leandrin to be a rival to both Moirin and Swan. Um, but I, my hope is that she will be like a, a small bad, like a like a small bad for episode or for seasons one and two, or maybe even seasons one, two, and three. Oh, and then we introduce Elida as a big bad after everything goes down. Yeah, because I don't think we're going to get the big Elida plot point, the first big Elida plot point, until season three. So I could see them setting her up as this like neutral high and Actually, you know what? I just had a thought. They, they're definitely not cutting Elida because Moiraine talks about her in episode eight. She did? Elida is the one who beats Moiraine. In A New Spring. But did she name her? She doesn't name her, but I don't think that they would have alluded to that character in that way if they weren't going to introduce her. If they did allude to her and never introduced her, that line would make no sense to me. And it would be just yet another quibble that I would have to say. But because of that line, I think I grabbed my best friend's arm and was like... She's coming. I'm so excited. <laughs> you can't wait to hate. I can't. It's the why I'm excited for the Sean Chan. I hate them too. So thrilled to see them. In the you show. know, I am I am wondering how they are going to handle the accent that the Sean Chan have because it is so very uh well versed in the books that it's a slurry Texan accent. I I don't know if this is at all indicative of what they're going to do in the show, but in the Rosamund Pike version of book two, she gives them a Texas accent. That's good. 
That's a good sign. Mostly because I want to hear more Southern accents on TV, but I also want them to be done well. Like, I don't want to hear somebody doing a fake Texas draw. I want somebody with a real Southern accent. (laughs) (laughs) I think that at least one of the actresses who's been cast for a Sean Chan role is Texan, or at least Southern, from what I remember. I would need to double check myself, but... That's all the verification we need. Don't check your sources. It's confirmed. <laughs> I, I believe you. <laughs> and I'm going to look forward to some authentic Southern accents that aren't done by Hollywood actors. It will also be such a nice way to yet again set the show apart from other shows that are coming out, like Rings of Power, mm-hmm. like House of the Dragon, where everyone is in some way vaguely British or European. Yeah. To just have this other culture come in and it's like, hi, we're American, <laughs> will feel so strange. How you doing, y'all? <laughs> I really hope so, because Andor, I guess, is like English enough that I'm okay with everybody kind of having a vaguely British accent right now. But it would be really nice if we didn't go there, because it's not set in England. These people aren't from England. The, their cultures are from around the world. They should have varied accents. I agree. They shouldn't all sound like royalty, you know, with the posh British accent. Oh, we'll definitely get that from Elaine. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Cannot wait. Wait, you got Maureen with hers, which makes sense. There's, there's Megan with her Scottish, Irish? accent which i really liked and i do think that algalmar and annalisa we just looked up her name and i've forgotten it again yeah it was amalisa amalisa um they had a more of a eastern diet like eastern which i liked yeah foldara was definitely kind of a more traditional eastern kind of setting not quite like saldea but it had more of an uh, asian inspiration yeah like all the borderlands were very Eastern Asian and their cultures. I think Daniel Henney was talking about at one point the costume director asked him, you know, what would you like to see for the culture or for the the costuming for um why am I forgetting what country he is from? <laughs> Malkir. <laughs> Thank you. For Malkir. <laughs> and he was like, I would love to see it be traditionally Korean because Daniel Honey is Korean American. Um And so they used a lot of like hanbok and like Korean clothing inspired looks for, um, for Malkier, which I thought was a beautiful touch. We should talk release date. Do we have a release date? We do not. I guess I was just assuming it would be October again. There's been several sources quoted that it won't be until 2023. And I am fine with that because I want them to take as long as they possibly need for post-production. They wrapped filming in May. If we give them eight months, that would be March, April. Yeah, April would be a great time to release something like that. Yes, April would be a great time for that. <laughs> they could do it, you know, a big premiere at some sort of event where a lot of Wheel of Time fans might be. <laughs> I see you picked up on my hint. I'm laughing because I completely agree with you guys. It would be perfect to drop right around that time. I yeah I don't think that they will do it this year because they're not going to want to take um they're not going to want to pull focus from Rings of Power they've invested so much in that show that they are they're not going to want to cannibalize their audience at all 
That is very true. Yeah, that's a very good point. Our next segment is Ask Carvalon Talks. If you'd like to ask us a question, please reach out to us on the forums, or you can email us at producertvt at gmail.com. Our first question is, how was Kalindor made, and why is it called a sword that is not a sword? Why is Kalindor the sword that is not a sword? Well, I guess the easiest question to that is, um, I mean, we know what it is. I mean, Moraine explains to Rand and the party, you know, once they find out about the sword in the heart of uh, Tyr, that, you know, it is a very powerful um, Sangriel, I think it was. Yeah, Sangriel. Yeah. That was left over from, you know, the previous era. And I think that kind of explains it enough, it enough right there that it it's completely made of, you know, crystal, glass, whatever material they said. And it's shaped like a sword. So it is a sword, but it is also not a sword. And for how they are made, um, that, uh, that knowledge is lost to the breaking. Um, as far as we know, no one in the Third Age knows how to make song real anymore. Our next question is, what were the inspirations for the cultures of Ranland? And do they have real-world equivalents? I'm going to put a pin in that question because in our next episode, we will be interviewing Michael Livingston, and he is releasing a book called Origins of the Wheel of Time that talks about just this topic. So we're going to answer that question next episode. At this point in the episode, we're going to go no holds barred on all things spoilers. Each week, one of our hosts will pick something from the books to talk about, and if you have not finished reading the books and don't wish to be spoiled, please stop listening now. So I was thinking for the first couple of episodes, we can pick our favorite scene from any book and anywhere in the series. I would like to go first. I have sort of alluded to this earlier, and my favorite character of all time is Varen. People underestimate her because she seems absent-minded. But if you pay more attention to what she's saying, you see there's a lot more going on than you think. And the scene where she reveals her plan was my favorite scene of all times, I think, any book ever. I thought she had gotten caught up as a, as a dark friend and was trying to get out or something like that. But it had never occurred to me that she accidentally swore the earth to the dark one and turned like counter spies. And the way she did it was just so freaking epic and took out every single Black Aja member like in one fell swoop. It's just so epically brown and epically beautiful. And like, okay. I could gush about Baron forever. <laughs> I, I loved how it went down when when she goes in and she you know she sits down and she drinks her tea and then she goes like that dress is blue and you just you and you're just like oh oh my oh man something's about to go down. That scene is so epic. I I agree with everything you said, doll. That scene is so epic. It is like Varen was she's she was never like my favorite character but she was definitely in like my top 10 and that scene solidified her there forever 
Um, Legendary like, status. Truly. Like, just what? Just just such an incredible move. Like, just every all of the other dark friends are playing checkers, and Varen is over here playing 3D chess. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's that it, that is that is definitely a scene that is very hard to top in the entirety of the series. Like just the impact that it has on the entire story. Yeah, and it's just two people sitting down having tea. Well, one of them's having tea, the other one's having poison. <laughs> and this is why I think they're going to introduce Varen sooner than later. It's one of those epic scene where scenes where it's like you don't necessarily need to do this verbatim, but you got to do this. Even if it's just her purposely killing herself with a slow-acting poison, it gives her just enough time to lay out everything she needs to sit down and basically rat out every Black Aja so that she's betraying them in the hour of her death and then lay down and die. If I ever become an evil overlord and I swear my minions to an oath, I will not use such flowery language. Just be simple with it. You will not betray me no hour of your death because you can do a lot of damage in an hour. If you're Varen, you sure can. <laughs> if you're Varen and you've been working on this for 30 years. The Dark One is definitely undone by his own dramatic streak at more than one occasion. It's like the, the villain who takes too long to explain his dastardly plan, allowing the the good guy to get away because he had to explain it because see how <laughs> clever I am <laughs> alright well that's my favorite scene um, I think in future episodes we'll pick another spoilery scene and one of you guys can talk about it oh, I'm sure I can come up with something Yeah, I already have five <laughs> okay <laughs> excellent <laughs> thank you for listening to Tarvalon Talk join us next time we talk to Michael Livingston about his book, The Origins of the Wheel of Time. Don't forget to like this episode and follow us on whatever platform you listen to your podcast on. If you have any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear from us, feel free to send us an email at producertvt at gmail.com.